Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Peter chapter 5. And we'll be looking at verse 5 and 6. And Peter's emphasis to the church in this passage is one of humility, to be humble. 1 Peter chapter 5, I'll begin reading in verse uh, 5. And these are kind of the wrap-up, concluding comments of Peter to these churches scattered throughout modern-day Turkey that he's writing to, that he is uh, taught on many different uh, subjects as he's attempted to encourage them in times of suffering and persecution. And so now he's wrapping up some important points he wants to make in the rest of this chapter. So he says in verse 5, You younger men likewise be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. And just to finish the sentence, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. And may God bless the reading of His Word. So in these verses, Peter is primarily addressing younger men first, and then the church as a whole where he spends the majority of his comments. He starts out saying to young men, likewise be subject to your elders. And this is primarily to preserve the unity, the peace, and the love within the church, to prevent factions, to prevent divisions. Of course, if the elders are abandoning the gospel or promoting sin, obviously that's a different matter. But in general, younger men are to be subject to their elders, even in those areas where they may disagree on secondary issues. This is not to deny personal conviction, but again, just to promote the unity and the love within the body. Notice that Peter brings up this word subject. This is a word that he's emphasized throughout the letter. Uh, He's used this word six times. He has spoken to believers to be subject to their governing authorities. Slaves are to be subject to their masters. Wives are to be subject to their husbands. And young men are to be subject to their elders. One of the, uh, well, the main motto of FIRE, which is the church association that we participate in, FIRE stands for Fellowship of Independent Reformed Evangelicals. Their motto is something that has been uh, brought forth in the church for many centuries probably, but it summarizes the complexity of some of these exhortations. And it says, in essentials, unity. The essentials of the Gospel, obviously, unity. In non-essentials, Liberty, and that's in many of the secondary issues, There's, there should be liberty. But in all things, charity. And Philip Schaff, one of the distinguished 19th century church historians, 
called this saying the watchword of Christian peacemakers. So the Apostle Peter encourages young men in that direction. The most of his uh, comments are directed to the church as a whole. Notice after he addressed younger men, he says, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. So now he's referencing everybody within the church. That humility is one of those virtues that everyone needs to practice. So he says, uh, to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. And the reason why this is such an important exhortation is because by human nature, we are all proud creatures. It's part of our cursed and depraved nature that our pride oftentimes boils up within our life. Uh, we are still afflicted with it to one degree or another, even though regeneration and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit Spirit can tap that down some, but we still struggle with it. We all do. I do. Everyone does. It's been called, pride has been called the taproot of our fallen nature. It's the core sin of, of our depravity that still grows within our hearts. I love what Spurgeon says that the demon of pride was born with us and it will not die one hour before us. It is so woven into the very warp and woof of our nature that till we are wrapped in our winding sheets or our burial cloths, we shall never hear the last of it. So that's why the exhortation to humility is so important because it's something that we struggle with. You see, pride, the proud heart wants to exalt himself or herself. It makes us think we're, we're higher or, or that we're, we, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. That we're superior causes us to look down on others. So that pride actually is a form of self-idolatry. It's a form of making me God of my life. And this kind of pride, as it always has, deceives us because we see it clearly in other people, but we don't see it so clearly in ourselves. It's been said that pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone else sick except the one who has it. Because we see it, sickens us when we see it in others, but we don't see it in ourselves. Our self-righteousness always elevates our pride into a virtue. And that's why I like Calvin's comment about the deceptiveness of pride He says, we hop around like toads and imagine ourselves gliding gracefully like a racing stallion. I mean, that's the pride of man's heart. We're just hopping around like frogs. And yet we envision ourselves as racing like a a stallion, a racehorse down the track. We have a totally different picture of the reality of what we really are. And I think he nailed it pretty good there. 
Peter again, as he gives this exhortation, I know in the back of his mind he's, he's aware of his own failures. His own past failures in this regard. Jesus, remember, told His disciples in Matthew 26 that you all fall away because of Me this night. And remember how Peter responded. He said to the Lord, Lord, even though all may fall away because of You, I will never fall away. In other words, I'm Peter the lion-hearted Lord. I'm the faithful. I'm the brave. You can trust Me. And then Jesus informed him, okay, Peter, rock man, whoever you think you are, you're going to crumble and deny me three times. And he did. Pride comes before the fall. So what is humility that Peter is exhorting his readers to? Well, Paul summarizes it, I think, in one way in Philippians 2.3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. So inherent within the humble heart is to make ourselves small and lowly minded so that we don't exalt ourselves or engage in self-promotion. We don't elevate ourselves over others. We don't have an attitude of superiority or a haughty perspective towards other people. And obviously from this passage, Paul in Philippians 2 goes on to say that basically have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he gives Christ as the greatest example of humility. For though He was fully God, He came down to man and He was obedient to the Father in His human nature and His incarnation, even to the point of death on the cross. The eternal, almighty, infinite, glorious Son of God came and took to Himself a lowly human nature so that He could identify with us and be our substitute and die for us. And that's humility. So ultimately, humility comes by imitating Christ, focusing on Christ, exalting Christ, not ourselves. That's the direction of true humility. It's Christ-centered, not me-centered. And Paul spells that out, I think, well in his writings. So how is this humility developed? Well, again, humility comes from saying that in ourselves we're nothing. We are nothing. We can do nothing. We can accomplish nothing apart from God's grace in Christ. That I need the Lord in everything I do because I can't do anything. That's a humble heart. Trusting in God. Looking to the Lord. Realizing that we need Him in everything. Again, that was the attitude of Paul. He could say, I planted Apollos water, but God was causing the growth. The people that came to faith, that wasn't me. That was God working in their hearts. God gets the glory for it. And of course, all of this is is, uh, reflecting what Jesus taught His disciples in John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in Me and I in Him, He bears much fruit. For apart from Me, you can do nothing, not anything. All ministry is a result of Christ 
working in us. And Paul again would ask that challenging question, what do you have that you've not received? So we think, well, I have what I have earned. I have what I have accomplished. No, it's only by God's grace that you've done those things. So true humility is Christ-centered, realizing that all that we are, all that we have, flows to us from God through Jesus Christ. It's by His grace and His grace alone. To take credit for things is to rob God of the glory that He deserves. So Peter says to the entire church, clothe yourselves with humility. And that idea of clothing ourselves with humility may very well have come from our, from Peter's remembrance of what happened on the last night that they celebrated Passover together. When the Lord was going to bring in the Lord's Supper and institute it. But prior to them eating, he remembers what Jesus did. How he set aside his robe and he took to himself a towel and he girded himself and he washed the feet of his disciples. He girded himself. He clothed himself with humility. And Peter may very well have that in the back of his mind when he's exhorting the church to imitate the humility that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's an amazing humility. The Creator of the universe, the Lord of glory, who created the dirt of the ground and then created man from the dirt of the ground is now washing the dirt off the feet of those created from the dirt that He created. It's a pretty amazing act of humility and service. The importance of humility in the local church is that without humility, conflicts and divisions naturally arise. Humility is kind of like the oil in the, in the engine that enables the relationships in the church to run smoothly and lovingly. Now, I remember when I was in seminary, I killed my car. And I killed it because it had an oil leak and I wasn't very attentive to maintenance on my car. And all the oil drained out of it. And as I was driving down the highway, suddenly the engine just froze up and clunked. And I heard this horrible noise. The engine died and I just coasted off to the, to the side of the road because there was no oil in it. And then it was metal on metal and it, it just crunched together, broke. So humility is kind of the oil that smooths and enables us to love one another and minister to one another uh, even in areas where we may disagree. It's that godly humility that is a blessing to each and every church. So why does He tell the church to clothe yourselves with humility towards one another? Well, He said because God is opposed to the proud. And Peter now is drawing from Proverbs chapter 3. There's a great proverb here. He's drawing primarily from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. But God is opposed to the proud. That's why we need to clothe ourselves with humility. Pride, you see, is rebellion against God. It wants to rule. It wants to sit on the throne. It wants to 
do it my way or the highway. And pride is aligned with the corrupt world system. As John says, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And Calvin says that all who seek to elevate themselves shall have God as their enemy who will lay them low. So that pride is something that God hates and pride is something that God is opposed to in my life and in all of our lives. God hates pride. It's an abomination to Him. It's interesting in Proverbs 6, when Solomon writes, there's six things that the Lord hates and seven which are an abomination to Him. The very first one on the list is haughty eyes. Proud eyes. God hates. It's an abomination to Him. And if humility lowers self, pride exalts self. Pride wants the spotlight. It wants the power, the attention, the praise. And God is opposed to that. He alone is worthy of praise. Not us. And when we seek it, we're stealing it from Him. We're robbing it from Him. So God is opposed to the proud. Anyone that wants to rule on their throne, they're competing with God. And guess who's going to lose? Satan did that, by the way. Satan in Isaiah 14. This is referencing a human king, but there's enough in here that in my opinion, it's uh, probably also becomes a type reflection of Satan before he fell from heaven. This was his attitude. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will make myself like the Most High. And what did God say to him? Nevertheless, you'll be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. So this is the attitude of Satan. He wanted to to rebel against God. He wanted God's throne. He wanted the praise. He wanted the power. He wanted to rule. And God says, I'm opposed to that and cast Him out of heaven. But the Scripture is just full of warnings telling us that God is opposed to the proud. Adam and Eve, why were they cast out of the garden? Because Eve was deceived by Satan that she would become like God if she ate of that fruit. And her, 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 her nature turned to that and grasped it. Pride arose within her heart. She gave it to Adam, the covenant head. He ate and then the, both of them were cursed, cast out of the garden. God's opposed to the proud. How about with Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar in his, in his palace, out in his garden, says, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? God's opposed to the proud. What did God do to Nebuchadnezzar? Turned him into a cow. Made him go out and eat grass for seven years. How about Absalom? Exalted himself over his father, King David, and got literally hung out to dry. Got his hair caught up in the branches of an oak tree and then was speared to death because God was opposed to his pride. King Uzziah. 
who thought he was good enough to offer incense in the temple as a priest, of which he was forbidden not to do, but he did it anyway in pride and arrogance. And God turned him into a leper and he remained a leper to the day of his death. King Herod was eaten by worms. Jonah had to go through the big gulp, being swallowed by the big fish to humble him in his pride. It took him a while, if ever, to get over it. But God is opposed to the proud. We see that over and over again. Pride is always brings destruction. It will ruin your marriage. Pride will. It will destroy your home. Pride will divide friends and churches and businesses and even nations because of pride. Because we're so focused on me rather than exalting Christ, it's all about exalting me. And God is opposed to the proud. So Peter wants his readers to hear that and learn from that. Because it is a bit of a warning. But, he follows with the rest of Proverbs 3. That God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. That's the encouragement. To pursue humility. Because when God sees a humble heart, He gives grace to that heart. When the proud repent and humble themselves, God gives grace. The Apostle Paul had to learn this. You know, God gave him so many revelations that he easily could have become arrogant and exalt himself. So God gave him a thorn in the side to humble him. And Paul learned from that so that he could say and learn from the Lord that God's grace was sufficient for him, that when he was weak, then he was strong. It took a thorn for Paul to be kept in that humble spirit because his heart would have become proud and probably did at times. But he learned humility and God gave him grace. He learned that God's grace was sufficient in all of His needs and all of His ministry that God's grace was all He needed. The Lord Jesus taught us that blessed are the poor in spirit, the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's grace for you. The kingdom of heaven. The Scriptures say that the humble in heart will receive strength from the Lord, wisdom from the Lord, blessings from the Lord, answers to their prayer, and honor from the Lord. And Isaiah says that, that God's favorable gaze, He looks upon with favor upon the poor. Poor in spirit. The humble. Isaiah 66, verse 2, God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. God gives grace to the humble. Obviously, this begins when we first come to faith in Jesus Christ. Because by nature, we are proud sinners. We are self-righteous 
in our own depraved nature. And when the grace of salvation, the grace of God begins to work in our hearts to change us, we become aware of our sin. We become aware of our worthiness of God's judgment. And we humble ourselves by God's grace and look to Jesus Christ alone for salvation. This is a difference when Jesus told the story about the Pharisee and the tax collector. Many of us, well, all of us really by nature are Pharisees. The Pharisee in that story said, God, I thank You that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. For I fast twice a week, pay tithes of all that I get. You can just see he's proud of his religion. He's proud of his religious works. He's trusting in them. He thinks that he he is worthy of God because he's a good man. He's a righteous man. And he looks down upon the tax collector. That arrogance, that pride. He looks down on him. I'm not like that man. I'm so much better than that guy. And then the Lord says the tax collector was standing at a distance, unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, crying out, have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus said it was the tax collector that went home to his house justified, not the Pharisee. And then he adds these words. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And that's what salvation brings to the heart of the sinner. For before I may be blind to my sin, when the grace of God moves into our heart, suddenly I become aware of my sin. Instead of my pride, I'm, I'm, I humble myself because I know I'm guilty before a holy God and I deserve His judgment. And what grace does, it humbles our heart and we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, have mercy upon me. I deserve Your wrath. Give me Your mercy. I'm looking and trusting in the shed blood of Jesus Christ alone to forgive me. I'm not worthy, dear Lord. Please forgive me of all of my sins and give me the gift of everlasting life. And He promised that He would to any sinner who humbles themselves and looks to Christ alone for not only forgiveness, but for the gift of everlasting life. Have you humbled your heart before God? Have you truly acknowledged your sin and your unworthiness before a holy God? Have you truly acknowledged that you're not a good person, but you're a child of wrath by nature? And there is only one way to escape the judgment that we all deserve. And that is through the Lamb of God. Putting your faith and trust only in Christ and His shed blood to forgive you of your sins. And you humble your pride and you look to Christ. And you call upon the name of the Lord. And He says you will be saved. Have you done that? And if not, will you do it? Do it now. Look to the Lord.
Because He's promised that He alone can save you from your sins. Salvation only comes to those who have been stricken with a sense of their sin and humble themselves as undone sinners before a holy God and they come to Christ alone for forgiveness. Well, Peter then says in verse 6, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. So now he's emphasizing again the importance of humbling ourselves, each of us, under the mighty hand of God. It's an interesting expression, the mighty hand of God. It's used in the Old Testament quite a bit, most often for God's mighty hand that delivered Israel out of Egypt. That great deliverance. But the mighty hand of God did two things. It destroyed the Egyptians. It brought the ten plagues on the Egyptians and humbled them for their pride. But it also brought about an incredible deliverance for God's people. It brought both judgment and deliverance. And Peter is saying to the church, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Realizing that he's opposed to the proud, And that mighty hand of God, if I even as a child of God give myself to pride, then He can discipline me with His mighty hand. Don't lose my salvation, but He can discipline us for our pride and our arrogance. But He can also deliver us. So we humble ourselves under His mighty hand looking to Him. And then He says that He may exalt you at the proper time. Again, the words of Jesus, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Peter says, humble yourself and you will be exalted at the proper time. When is that proper time, by the way? Well, it's locked up in the providence of God. God alone knows when He will fulfill that promise to those who humble themselves. But He promises that He will exalt you at the proper time. It's not a guarantee that we'll all be exalted in this life. A lot of the readers of these letters will probably later on possibly die as martyrs. They'll certainly be persecuted They may suffer a lot and lose a lot. They may not be exalted in this life, certainly in the life to come. But that's ultimately according to God's infinite wisdom when that will occur. And part of humility is to wait upon God's timing as to when He may or may not exalt us even though we humble ourselves before Him. Because we don't know ultimately God's plan. We don't know God's timetable. He's promised to exalt us. We just don't know when. This week? Next year? The end of my life? In heaven? Just don't know. But we cannot rush God's timing. We have to, in humility, wait upon the Lord. To rush God's timing always has negative consequences in our lives. 
You can go out to in the spring, go out to a rose bush, which is loaded with all these beautiful little rose buds, and you can say, I want it to bloom now. And so you can go to that rose bush and grab one of those little buds, and you can peel open those petals because you want it to bloom now. You want the fragrance now. But what you'll end up doing is destroying the flower. You can want want time to move faster than it's, than, than it's going now. And you can go to your clock in your home and you can grab the minute hand or the hour hand and you can push it all the way around the face of that clock and make it chime. But it'll chime wrong. True humility is willing to just wait upon the Lord to bring deliverance. To wait upon the Lord to reverse the circumstances. Particularly when we can't control those things. They're out of our hands. We can try to rush God, but the humble heart learns to just wait upon the Lord. God told Abraham that he would have a son. A covenant son. And not through Hagar, but through Sarah, his wife. And ultimately, Abraham had to wait 25 years for God to exalt him and give him that son. 25 years. Joseph, after his brothers sold him into slavery in Egypt, had to wait probably around 13 years before God exalted him to the place of power in Pharaoh's house. Moses had to wait 40 years before God raised him up to be the deliverer of his people from Egypt. It's always a challenge to wait upon the Lord, but that's what humility must do. God is infinitely wise. God's ways are always best. And though I may be wanting a, a blessing from the Lord, and I'm humbling myself before God, we still must wait upon His timing. And that timing may appear slower than what we want. But ultimately, I think Peter, who has focused so much on the second coming throughout his letter, probably has that as the ultimate point of time when God will exalt us. Remember back up in verse 4, he said, when the chief shepherd appears, that's when the crown of glory is given to godly elders. But that's when glory is given to all of God's people. When the chief shepherd appears, then he will give the exaltation, the glory. So we may have to wait ultimately until then. We have to trust in Christ and look to ultimately the exaltation when the Lord arrives at the proper time. We just don't know when that, when that will be. So in conclusion, what Peter has been focusing on is the importance of humility for the church. Humility in our relationships with one another. And the key to humility is really to lie low and to exalt Christ. To wrap, to sum it up, we humble ourselves and we exalt Christ. We don't exalt ourselves, we exalt Jesus Christ. And that's what the humble heart longs to do. John the Baptist, remember, said when he began to be introduced to Jesus Christ and began to observe Him. He said this, He said, 
He, Christ, must increase, but I must decrease. That's the key to humility. Lie low, decrease, exalt Christ. The more we grow in pride, then the more we deceive ourselves, the more we focus on Christ, then our pride will naturally shrink because we see ourselves for what we really are. Undone sinners who deserve the wrath of God, who only by trusting Christ alone and His atoning blood on the cross can be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. It's all about Christ. Ultimately, it's not about us. And the more we take our eyes off of Christ and focus on ourselves, then our pride will grow. And so in all things, we realize that Christ is everything. God's grace is everything. I am nothing. I can do nothing apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. I remember reading a story about Arturo Toscanini who was a famous Italian conductor at the end of the 19th century and the first part of the 20th century. One of his concerts, he conducted an orchestra that played Beethoven's Sixth Symphony. And it was a wonderful concert by all reports. The music was incredible. The harmony was just sublime. The music was one of the best renditions of Beethoven's work, seemingly. And at the end of the of the concert, the crowds roared in cheers and they applauded and a standing ovation just showing their praise to the conductor and, and the orchestra for this incredible experience of the music that they had just played. And after the applause started to subside, Toscanini leaned over his music stand and with great emotion he spoke in a voice that his orchestra could hear. And he said, I am nothing. You are nothing. But Beethoven is everything. And I think that captures the spirit of the child of God that we should live with every day to realize that I am nothing, you are nothing, but Jesus Christ, He is everything. And that's the heart of true humility. Not to exalt ourselves, but to exalt Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory and the praise and the dominion forever and ever and ever. And may God give us that humility to exalt Christ in our lives. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Father God, as we hear these challenging exhortations to humility, Lord, we, we feel within our own hearts, I do, Lord, oftentimes just the stinkweed of pride within my own heart. And oh God, we just pray that You would show us more of the glory of Christ. Christ in the Gospel. Christ on His throne. Christ coming again. 
And that seeing His beauty and His glory and His grace, that I would humble myself and seek to lie low and exalt Him. Oh Father, forgive us for our pride that we still wrestle with on a daily basis. And give us Your grace that we might truly see and believe and feel within our souls that apart from Christ, we are nothing. That we are nothing, we can do nothing, but Christ is everything. So draw our hearts to Him, our allegiance, our love, our obedience, and our worship. For the Lamb of God alone is worthy of our devotion and our praise. So help us, Lord, to grow in this humility, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.